Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups, every single Tuesday, and From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. I do all these podcasts full-time. The writing, the research, everything. So every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And I truly do appreciate it, and I'll thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. If you like, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. You can also find me on YouTube, where I put up weekly YouTube videos. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X, E-H-X, don't forget. And you can visit my website, where I have nearly 700 articles and transcripts all about Canadian history. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. The land that would one day be Wetaskiwin has long since been the home of the Cree and the Blackfoot, and would play a very important role in their history. Habitation in the area by the indigenous dates back to at least 8,000 years, and broken tools, bones, and other artifacts have been found in the area. The hills around Wetaskiwin provided early hunters with the ability to track game throughout the region from an excellent vantage point. Moose, beaver, wolf, and bison were all hunted in the area. This made the region highly prized among the indigenous, and that could lead to conflict. By the early 1800s, with impact of Europeans changing cultural lines and territories of the indigenous, conflict erupted between the Cree of northern Alberta and the Blackfoot of the south. According to the oral histories, around 1867, Chief Little Bear of the Cree and Chief Buffalo Child of the Blackfoot were both doing reconnaissance in the area prior to a battle when they happened to arrive at the top of a hill at the same time. According to the history of Wetaskiwin, it states, quote, These two proud warriors, face streaked with okra and vermilion war paint, evenly matched and build in weight as strong as young poplar trees around them. End quote. The two men began to fight each other, but were evenly matched and eventually grew tired. According to the stories, they then smoked a common pipe together and soon pledged friendship and peace. Both chiefs then went back to their people and summoned a council. At the spot where the two chiefs fought, four Blackfoot chiefs and six Cree chiefs smoked a peace pipe, promising peace and friendship. The area gained the name of Wetaskiwin Spatanao, meaning place where peace was made. Six decades later, in 1927, a peace cairn was erected as a memorial to the two groups that made peace. School children brought rocks from the hills overlooking Wetaskiwin to build the cairn, which was dedicated on July 2nd, 1927 and in July 2006 it was moved to the Visitor Info Center. During the 1885 rebellion, Major General Thomas Bland Strange oversaw defending the Alberta district of the Northwest Territories and keeping peace in the area. 
In order to do this, he created three small forts, also known as blockhouses. There was one near Red Deer, one near Pinoka, and Fort Ether, located north of Wetaskiwin. Fort Ether was built on a local farm in order to protect the people of the area and keep the First Nation people in the area from joining the rebellion. When it was built, the fort site consisted of a blockhouse, a palisade, and some of the buildings already on the farm. The fort featured three loopholes or gunpoints on various elevations as well as a pyramid roof that was crowned by a flagpole. Blockhouse B is actually still standing, the only piece of the former fort that still survives. Building A was the barracks, while Building C was the interpreter's house. Building D was the stables, and Building E was the home of the farmer. While the fort was built, the peace was never broken in the area, and the fort was never attacked. The indigenous people in the area never attempted to join the rebellion, and once the danger was over, the fort was abandoned. On December 18, 1997, the fort was made a historical site. Today, I'm excited to announce that one of the best scripted drama podcasts is returning for its third season. The Mermaid and the Lion, a show about two imperfect people working to perfect their love for one another, is back. These days, staying married forever is an anomaly, but those who make it through have quite the stories to tell of the highs and lows of being together. The Mermaid and the Lion follows Angel and Gaza, who believe they are on the right path to making it last, but that comes from understanding where they have been, what brought them together, and what keeps them in love. On The Mermaid and the Lion, you can follow Angel and Gaza as they go through all the drama, sex, trust issues, pain, growth, and friendship. The Mermaid and the Lion, an epic journey to death do us part, returning for a third season this November on all podcast platforms. In 1891, the railroad was put down from Edmonton to Strathcona, just on the other side of the river from Edmonton. One of the spots along the way was called Siding 16, and this would be the start of Wetaskiwin. One year later, Wetaskiwin was surveyed and the town site was subdivided. Before long, the community had its first business, a post office, a hotel, and a railway station. Two years later, the first school was built, and by 1900, Wetaskiwin was a village. The community would continue to grow in size, and by 1902, it was large enough to become a town. Only four years later, its prime location had brought enough settlers to the area that it gained the title of a city. Only a few weeks after the Frank Slide, one of the worst fires in the history of small towns in Alberta would occur in the brand new community of Wetaskiwin. It was on June 22, 1903 at 2.30am when a fire started in the ladies' dressing room at the Herrick Opera House on Railway Street East. The cause of the fire was never known, but it was first noticed by Mr. D. Williams, who was the manager of the Clare Hammer Opera Company, and saw the fire in the reflection of the Criterion Hotel. He ran through the opera house to save props and wardrobes until he was forced to flee because of the intense heat. The company would lose everything, including all its jewelry, with only three small trunks saved. Strong winds in the evening blew the fire northwest, resulting in the fire leaping a vacant lot and hitting the Criterion Hotel. The hotel was quickly on fire and spreading to the nearby stable, but thankfully the horses were saved before it burned down. At another hotel, those in the hotel began to clear out their possessions, while the local barbershop employees were able to save their mirrors and chairs, but lost their razors. The town fire brigade did their best, but the fire crossed over Pierce Street, and in less than 20 minutes, the John West store was burned to the ground. The fire would continue to move south in the community, burning down a real estate office and a law office. The fire then reached the Nils Schmidt liquor store, which was made of brick, which stopped the fire and allowed the brigade to get the fire under control after several hours. While the fire was under control, several buildings were emptied of everything that the owners could find in case the fire spread. 
Adding insult to injury, it had begun to rain, which was good to fight the fire, but bad for all the possessions and items now on the street. By the end of it all, the fire had destroyed $200,000 in goods and buildings, with John West losing $65,000 alone, including his building and contents. The dressmaking parlor of Mrs. Huckle lost $30,000, half of which was covered by insurance. The Wetaskiwin Band lost all of its instrument, and 60 people had lost their jobs because the businesses they worked at had burned to the ground. And while no humans perished in the fire, two cats and two owls died. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. One of the most recognizable and historically important buildings in Wetaskiwin is the Courthouse Building. With a history dating back over 100 years, it has become an extremely important landmark in the community. Due to its proximity to Edmonton and the Canadian Pacific Railway, Wetaskiwin was chosen as the Judicial Court District. Work soon began on the new courthouse that was designed by A.M. Jeffers shortly after his appointment as the provincial architect. Jeffers had experience in the United States with courthouse design and had designed several courthouses by this point throughout Western Canada. The Wetaskiwin Courthouse was one of seven new courthouses built in Alberta between 1906 and 1912. Work on the courthouse would begin in 1907, according to the date stone on the building that has the provincial crest on it. Over the next two years, work would continue on the building until it was finally completed in 1909. When it was completed, the two-story building featured a seven-bay facade and a main entrance that is defined by a round-arched doorway with a sandstone keystone and a gable-projected hood mold supported by sandstone brackets. The Wetaskiwin Courthouse would provide several important functions to the area. The basement was used by the local police service and included holding cells, and the main floor was provided for the sheriff and the court administration, while a large courtroom and auxiliary spaces were located on the upper level. The first trial was held in the building in 1908, one year before it officially opened. And the cannons out front of the building are German field cannons captured by the Allies during the First World War, which were given to Wetaskiwin in gratitude for the support provided by the community during the war effort. Today, the courthouse is considered to be the best preserved and least altered of all the courthouses built during that initial phase of building in the province. On March 15, 1977, the courthouse became a provincial historic site, and on June 11, 2007, the courthouse became a National Historic Site of Canada. During the building boom of 1906 and 1907, another structure would be built that would become a defining part of Wetaskiwin to this day. It was in that time when the water tower was built. 
Originally painted black, it held enough water on average to fill a 25-meter public swimming pool with a capacity of 454,000 liters of water. Standing at 150 feet tall, it is one of only 36 water towers remaining in Alberta, with only half of those retaining in its original function like the Wetaskiwin Water Tower does. The water tower would become such an important part of the community that even today it is part of the town crest. In 2006, the structure was threatened with demolition, but it was saved and completely restored at a cost of $1.9 million. Today, it remains the oldest functioning water tower in Canada. A lot of famous people have come from Wetaskiwin, and in this episode I've decided to focus on a man named Jackson Davies. Born on March 17, 1950 in Wetaskiwin, he would go on to act in over 160 stage shows throughout Canada while appearing on over 300 television shows and 30 movies. By far, his most famous role was that of RCMP Constable John Constable on the classic Canadian television show, The Beachcombers. He would appear on the show for 117 episodes, from 1975 until its end, and then in its revivals in the 21st century. I did an episode on The Beachcombers in 2020 and interviewed Jackson for it, and you can find a link to that episode in the transcript for this episode on my website. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. I uh, auditioned for it. The guy had one line, like, uh, are, are you ready? Or, no, I lie. Yeah. Are you ready to go? That was the line. I had to walk into Molly's Bridge, get the other RCMP officer and get him to leave. Uh, so I had, uh, I remember the audition. I worked on it. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? You know, I, I, I did it a million different ways. So I get there. Uh, they, uh, I do the line. They say, uh, oh, uh, can you grow a mustache? I went, yeah, sure. I he said, all right, so uh, uh, what size are you? I said, I'm uh, 42 tall. He went, okay. Then he kind of smiled. I think, well, maybe, you know, I guess. And then that, I did the line two or three different ways. And so I left him thinking, well, it was okay. My agent said, but phoned me and said, you got the part? I'm like, oh, cool. I said, it's great that they could, they could actually tell what a good, great actor I was by only one line. <laughs> but then I found out later it's because they only had one RCMP, extra RCMP uniform, and it was 42 tall. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's, so if I would have been a 38 medium, I'd have been still back at that meatpacking plant or something. In <laughs> if you would like to learn more about Wetaskiwin, you have plenty of museums to choose from. First, you have the Wetaskiwin Heritage Museum, which has existed since 1986 and features several exhibits that highlight the history of the area. There is a children's legacy center where children can handle artifacts as they explore the school, general store, and country home. On the main floor, the Women of Aspenland exhibit honors the accomplishments of local women, while on the second floor there are exhibits to honor the early businesses of the community, as well as the men and women who served during the war years. There is a display that showcases the history of Wetaskiwin hospitals, its 28 churches, and a Hutterite exhibit. There is also exhibits that look at the lives of Chinese and Swedish immigrants to the area, and if you like dinosaurs, then the second floor also has dinosaur fossils, an authentic teepee, a fur trading post, and more. The Alberta Central Railway Museum is located just to the southeast of the city, and it features a scaled-down version of the 1907 Canadian Pacific Railway Depot. The depot includes a waiting room, baggage room, and telegraph office, as well as exhibits and artifacts. There are also locomotives, a sleeping car, a passenger car, cabooses, freight cars, and more. A model train layout of the original Wetaskiwin rail yards is on display, and you can also explore an original 1906 Alberta Grain Company elevator, which is the second oldest grain elevator in the entire province. The biggest museum is, of course, the Reynolds Alberta Museum, 
which is located on an 89-hectare property that includes the main museum building, an aviation display hangar, and Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame. The museum has 6,600 agricultural, industrial, and transportation artifacts. The museum was first established in 1992 and has only grown since then. The main museum is 101,000 square feet and features a display that looks at life in Alberta from the 1890s to today. There are exhibits that include a 1911 automobile assembly line, a 1920s grain elevator, a service station from the 1930s, and a 1950s drive-in theater. The museum also has farm equipment from the early 20th century, and it has over 537 cars, motorcycles, and trucks, with some vehicles dating back to as far as 1913. The museum has also one of the two McLaughlin Buick automobiles used by the royal family during the 1939 Royal Tour of Canada. There are also 135 aircraft at the museum, making it the second largest collection of airplanes in Canada after the Canada Aviation and Space Museum. If you would like to learn more about the history of Wetaskiwin, you can also take the downtown walking tour, which follows the history of the city. Brochures are available online, at the museum, and at the Visitor's Information Centre. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Wetaskiwin. Tomorrow we're looking at the community of Oliver, British Columbia. And then on Saturday, we're going to look at the Avro Arrow. On Friday, on From John to Justin, I'll be looking at Bill Graham. And then next week on Pucks and Cups, I'll be looking at Frank McGee. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseeth, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.